Lots of things have days, like National Ice Cream Day. Lots of things have whole months, like USDA Invasive Plant Pest Month. So why not emergency communications? Emergency Communications Month is in fact going on right now, and for an update on what's going on in that field, we turn to the Executive Assistant Director for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Billy Bob Brown. Mr. Brown, good to have you with us. Well, thanks. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Let's begin with a little definition here. Emergency communications used to be 4G and radio. I mean, what constitutes emergency communications? So emergency communications is really the interconnected ecosystem of information supporting the safety of the citizen. It encompasses voice, video, data, and information services in the cloud. It includes requests for assistance from citizens using 911, response coordination efforts and incident command between government response organizations, notifications or alerts and warnings that are authoritative from government to citizen, and finally, citizen-to-citizen public information exchange, which includes critical infrastructures, sharing mission-essential information for restoration, as well as information uh, by our non-governmental disaster relief organizations. So in many ways, it's a system of systems, you might say. That's exactly right. And so this idea of interoperability, that's what everyone is pursuing because these used to be stovepiped types of systems. Police had radios, and the radios worked with other radios in a given geographical area, and that was it. Otherwise, you had to pick up the phone, and the radio had no communication with the phone. The holy grail now seems to be one device that is multimodal and multi-system. You know, I like to think about interoperability from the perspective of the stakeholders. So we partner with emergency communications officials all across the nation to address interoperability. And we support a group that assembles consisting of public safety communications officials from 35 different public safety affiliated associations. That group is called SAFECOM. SAFECOM has defined interoperability as the ability to seamlessly share emergency information on demand when authorized as needed in order to uh, support emergency activities. There are five lanes of the interoperability continuum described by SAFECOM. They are governance, standing operating procedures, training and exercises, usage, and technology. Only one of those lanes is technologies. The other four lanes, or 80% of the interoperability challenge, is related to people. That's why CISA is in the business of creating partnerships. All right. And before we get to that whole partnership question, I just wanted to ask you maybe for an update on what I remember from a number of years ago was the holy grail of, say, building CAD layout, architectural information, chemical information that might be in a facility, all of this type of thing that might exist in some digital format somewhere, being able to get fed to emergency responders Is that further along than it was when I last checked? Uh, Sure. Yes, it is. And it's continuing to move along, but it's continuing to evolve kind of along a continuum. You know, we have not reached the panacea where all of that kind of seamless, you know, LIDAR information about, you know, in-building design is seamlessly available, you know, but certainly with the advent of 5G being able to deliver faster speeds of millimeter wave communications, you know, that ability to deliver that form of information to emergency responders on the go is on the way. Because you would think when, say, a train tips over, and they seem to be doing that a lot these days, if the responders knew what was being spilled precisely and knew the topology of where they were operating, they might be able to have a more effective response faster. 
Yeah, I argue that it makes for a more effective emergency response. You can determine which resources are necessary because you have a better understanding of what the actual situation is. We're speaking with Billy Bob Brown. He's Executive Assistant Director for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and the whole communications piece there. And tell us about the partnership idea. I imagine it begins at home because there's lots of federal agencies, along with CISA, even other parts of DHS, that are in this fight. You know, you're 100%. And uh, CISA supports a team of partners across the federal departments and agencies. We call that the Emergency Communications Preparedness Center. And it includes 14 departments and agencies all working together to address and improve interoperable emergency communications. This team actually gathers, uh, they discuss lessons learned, they come to consensus around best practices, and then annually work together to partner and create an annual strategic assessment to improve emergency communications, which turns out to be a report that's provided to Congress annually. And I imagine that CISA brings to this the cybersecurity flavor, because as communications become more interrelated and more digital, the cyber threat, which never existed in the radio days or in the POTS days, is now the basic issue here for interoperability. Yep, that's exactly right. And as you probably remember, you know, 12 years ago, we started talking about the evolution of responder communications, you know, moving from just land mobile radio to include telephony and all of the broadband capabilities to include the use of data at the incident site. And we knew that there would come some period of time when everything was all IP enabled. We are now in what I call the messy middle, you know, as we continue to race towards all IP interconnectedness. We have to start talking about cyber vulnerabilities because all of those systems are cyber vulnerable. Somehow, no matter what the medium of transmission is nowadays, 5G or radio waves, IP, Internet protocol, is really becoming the de facto standard, correct? Yes, that is correct. And it is helpful because IP offers a different level of robustness because it is not confined to a particular circuit path. And what can the federal partnership do to help local jurisdictions? Because if you take New York City, they're probably pretty high up on the scale of sophistication of emergency communications. But you get to, you know, some of the small and rural areas, they're still maybe years behind. You're exactly right the way you sort of describe it. I mean, at every level of government, decisions to support public safety communications are made by executive decision makers, provide essential services based on the allocation of resources available. In the largest metropolitan areas where there are millions of people and businesses there, they have ample resources. You know, the smaller uh, rural jurisdictions, you know, they are challenged and they're making challenges based on the availability to include some commercial service availability in those areas. 18 months ago, as an example, I was in New Mexico and getting briefed by a group of state troopers, and there was a 20-mile stretch along the interstate highway. There was no commercial communications infrastructure available, and the troopers did not go into that area unless they had satellite phone capabilities. You know, so as you sort of mentioned earlier, you know, I think about how we're trying to create a whole-of-nation approach to interoperability, and it really is a system-of-systems approach recognizing what state and local and tribal and territorial jurisdictions have 
based on their own executive decision makers and resources available or resources that they can put together to meet them where they are to try and solve the challenges of interoperability according to those five lanes I described earlier. There must be federal grant programs for those jurisdictions to acquire maybe the gear they need to be interoperable and and high-end in their comms. But earlier you said that 80% of the issue is people. And so with interoperability and the latest gear, there's a big training and education component? That's exactly right. And there are grants. And in fact, you know, one of the emergency communications preparedness or the federal departments and agencies getting together is to try and look at grants that are provided by federal organizations to see that those federal assistance requests have some adherence to SAFECOM's grant guidance in order to allow for jurisdictions to uh, to request some of that assistance in a way that will facilitate the improvement of interoperability. Yeah, so that Bakelite microphone hanging on a little hook in the squad car, that's kind of going the way of the bubblegum machine on top. That's right. All right. And it is Emergency Communications Month, as we indicated. What special is going on? So there is a ton going on, and I'm super excited about recognizing emergency communicators all across the nation. So we are all about partnerships. And just last week, I was at the International Wireless Expo and Convention. I participated in a key discussion for the participants, and I included on that panel discussion with two of our public safety partners, asking them about the importance of Emergency Communications Month to the state and local public safety uh, practitioners. This month, we are also launching a campaign that we call uh, Get Connected and Stay Connected uh, to discuss the importance of CISA's priority services to critical infrastructure and to governments at every level. We join our federal partners. We will celebrate 911 heroes during National Public Safety Telecommunicators Week, and uh, we are looking forward to launching this month the next in our five-year survey the SAFECOM nationwide survey, which will help do an assessment of emergency communications capabilities and interoperability nationwide. All right. A lot going on. Billy Bob Brown is the Executive Assistant Director for Emergency Communications at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to 
be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, with the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. 
And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. 
Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.